Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. Well, I scratched out a few thoughts, concepts, and paradoxes that I wanted to share with you today. As an avid reader and learner, combining that with thousands of hours of client-facing planning conversations, some interesting observations and insights have started to come into form. Money's greatest intrinsic value, and this can't be overstated, is its ability to give you control over your time it's simply the highest dividend that money pays. So use money to gain control over your time because not having control over your time is such a powerful and universal drag on happiness. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want for as long as you want is the highest dividend that money pays. Far too often, people will scapegoat work as a source of their unhappiness. However, doing something that you love on a schedule that you can't control can feel the same way as doing something you hate. Thus, the illusion of a retirement being some extended corona commercial of hammocks on the beach can be pretty alluring. In my experience of walking this transition out with countless clients, the real goal should be about flourishing and independence more than the absence of work. Independence, to me, doesn't mean that you'll stop working. It means you'll only do the work that you like with the people that you like at the times you want for as long as you want. And at the same time, flourishing can be defined as a state in which all aspects of life are good a state of complete and utter well-being. For many people that haven't clearly defined their goals and priorities, the main goal simply becomes success. That creates a new challenge, though. The pursuit of success can be a catalyst for failure. Put another way, success can distract us from focusing on the essential things that produced the success in the first place. Why don't successful people automatically become more and more successful? There likely are countless explanations, but I really like the one from Greg McEwen's answer in this Harvard Business Review article titled The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. In the article, he identifies four predictable phases of success. One, when we really have clarity of our purpose, it leads to success. Phase two, when we have success, it leads to more options and more opportunities. Phase three, when we have increased our options and opportunities, it leads to a diffused effort. In phase four, diffused effort undermines the very clarity that led to our success in the first place. In that framework, success becomes a catalyst for failure. For example, only eight NFL teams have won the Super Bowl in back-to-back years. As the 49er coach Bill Walsh said, the toughest thing that I've ever done was to get my team to overcome the success disease. Winning a first Super Bowl, according to Walsh, is enormously easier than winning a second or a third. In his book, How the Mighty Fall, Jim Collins explored this phenomenon when he found that the key reason for these failures was that companies fell into this undisciplined pursuit of more. If that's true, 
if success is a catalyst for failure because it can lead to the undisciplined pursuit of more, then one simple antidote would be a disciplined pursuit of less. If time is finite, how can you consistently take your decisions through a well-calibrated, systematic sieve that categorizes things as must, should, or could? Not just haphazardly saying no, but purposefully, deliberately, and strategically eliminating the non-essentials. Not just once a year as part of a planning meeting, but constantly reducing and focusing and simplifying. Thus, continued success, flourishing, and independence introduces a paradox. A ferocious pursuit of excellence, focus, and self-reliance powered by grit alone doesn't actually scale. It's the age-old problem of what got you here won't get you there. What we observe is that wealth and options are a byproduct of a well-run business. That's awesome. We all want wealth and more options. However, successfully navigating the abundance of choices and options created by more wealth while juggling the complexities and stress of wealth are an entirely different skill set of running a business well. With more decisions, more options, higher stakes, more tension, even more complexity, but the same amount of time to process it all, no matter how rich you are, you still only get 24 hours in a day. As planners here at Delap, we help clients make more predictable and profitable financial decisions. However, there often isn't an objective right answer. Thus, questions help us determine priorities and goals. For example, a financial plan that truly enables us to make strategic financial decisions to reduce lifetime total taxes requires somebody to be able to answer these three questions. How much are you going to spend between now and the end of the plan? How much money do you want to leave to your heirs? And how much wealth do you want to go to charity? And when do you want the charities to receive it? The answers to those three questions will determine what strategies and tactics are going to be most supportive in ultimately reducing one's lifetime total tax expense. However, the questions behind those questions can be incredibly complicated. How can you know what you don't know? Can you even think of all the questions that have to accurately be answered before you'd ever have the right answer to those three questions? A few examples might include, what are the most important factors to living well? That answer might inform the answers to how much you want or need to spend during the course of a plan. What are the key considerations to crafting your legacy? What does passing on the values that are important to you to the next generation actually look like? How do you think about using the resources that actually exceed your personal needs? How do you raise responsible, independent, productive children versus entitled trust fund babies? How much money can you leave to your children? When do you want to leave it? Questions like this might inform our answers related to heirs and charity. The right answers are almost always preceded by the right questions. I believe that's one of the biggest values a great advisor can offer. That's why we really believe a facilitated planning process to gain clarity on your unique values, goals, and resources is the best path forward. That way we can design strategies that really align your wealth and values. But most importantly, the planning process will allow you the peace of mind to say no to the, all the things that you could do in order to say yes to the few things that you actually must do. That might be the highest benefit of any financial plan is the increased clarity on what's most important so you can pursue what's really essential. I can't help but take a minute to observe a recurring theme. It's accidental, but over the past 60 episodes, recurring. The theme is addition through subtraction. It's a theme of focus and essentialism. It isn't necessarily by, by design, but rather a recurring theme of success across so many different categories and topics. For example, Michael Porter, 
the godfather of business strategy, said that the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. In episode 25, Ken Weigel discussed the power of perspective to gain clarity on priorities so that you could say no more confidently and more often to distractions. The list goes on and on. It actually ties in real nice with Greg McEwen's success model discussed earlier. Success creates more options and opportunities. Increased options and opportunities can dilute our focus and overall execution. That got me reading more and more about the increased options and ultimately the paradox of choice. If you don't have a process, a team, and a clear organizing principle which drives everything else, this flood of options, this deluge of choices can overwhelm us. For example, if you financially didn't have to work anymore, would you still show up at the office? If you could comfortably afford to pay for 100% of your children or grandchildren's college, is that actually the right choice? If you can afford a second home, is that money well spent? If you could afford a private jet, should you actually buy it? Earlier in our life, a lack of financial resources limited the number of decisions that we were actually forced to make. We could just allow what we could afford to guide or limit the number of decisions that we were actually having to wrestle with. To prepare for this episode, I read a book by Barry Schwartz. The title was actually The Paradox of Choice. If it's a topic of interest, I'd encourage you to check out his TED Talk too, well worth a 20-minute watch. Let's explore some of the ideas from the book within the context of increased choices and options provided by an increased wealth or increased financial success. Schwartz explores the question, are the increased choices good news or bad news? And essentially, he responds with a resounding yes. Increased options is generally a great thing, but it's easy to overlook the negatives of the increased choices. Schwartz takes aim at a central tenet of Western societies, freedom of choice. In Schwartz's estimation, choices not made us freer, but more paralyzed, not happier, but potentially more dissatisfied. He explores the belief that the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. He challenges the paradigm that the more choices we have, the more freedom we'll experience, and that the more freedom we have, the happier we'll be. But is that always true? It's certainly so deeply ingrained within me that I've never actually stopped to really question it. Think about the choices that we have today. Between 1975 and 2008, the number of products in a supermarket rose from just about 9,000 to over 47,000. That's an increase of over 422%. It wasn't all that long ago that the societal assumption was that you'd get married as soon as you could and start having kids as soon as you could. That's no longer the case. So now all these decisions actually become real decisions. They occupy time, space, and energy. Let's talk about work. With our technology, it gives us the opportunity to work 24-7, 365 from just about anywhere. Do we work in the office or do we work from home? When we're at the soccer game watching our kids and we feel our phone ping, we're given a choice. Do we respond or not? Have increased choices increased our collective happiness? Admittedly, the number of choices we have isn't the only contributor to our happiness, but it's certainly a major influencer. The World Happiness Report asks the question, taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? Both adults and adolescents are reporting significantly less happiness today than they did in the early 2000s. Keep in mind that despite a lot of political class warfare in the news headlines, the net worth of American households now exceeds $119 trillion 
And this is objectively at an all-time record. This number's published quarterly by the Federal Reserve. American bank accounts have been bolstered by stimulus checks, enhanced unemployment benefits, increasing stock prices, and real estate prices. Simultaneously, your newsfeed likely looks a lot like mine, with article after article highlighting the troublesome depression and loneliness statistics. Isn't it ironic that within the biggest economy in the world, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, with more choices than ever, that we're still not happy? More money and more choices alone doesn't actually create more flourishing. What's the downside of choice? What are the negative effects? With so many choices, people are often more likely to experience paralysis than liberation. Here's an interesting example. There was a study done of 401k plans. They looked at the number of fund options provided to plan participants. For every 10 funds offered, the participation dropped by 2%. Offer 50 funds in a 401k, potentially 10% of the employees will be so paralyzed by the choices that they actually don't participate in the plan. The employees are just perpetually putting off the decision until the metaphorical tomorrow. Ultimately, paralysis is the first downside to increased choices that we have to navigate. The second downside effect of increased choices, if you can overcome the paralysis, is that you could actually be more dissatisfied with the outcome. It's so easy to imagine an alternative outcome that could have been even more pleasing. More choices increases the probability that we'll actually feel some regret. How much we value something depends on what we're comparing it to. And if that's true, then when there's a lot of alternatives to consider, it's easy to imagine an alternative feature an alternative that we actually rejected that makes us less satisfied with our choice that we've made. Opportunity costs subtract from the satisfaction we get out of what we've chosen, even if what we've chosen is terrific. We rarely consider the landmines that we might have avoided with our specific decision. One example I personally encounter nearly every day involves investments. Let's look to the S&P 500 in 2019. It was up 28.88%. In 2020, it was up 16.2%. In year-to-date, 2021, it's up 17.46%. So in just about two and a half years, a million-dollar investment would have grown to $1,759,927, an increase of about 76% in about two and a half years. Pretty awesome. However, countless people want to imagine, what if they had market-timed their million-dollar investment within Bitcoin? They conveniently ignore the 50% plus price plunge this year. Hindsight bias only exacerbates this dynamic. Despite a 76% return, they're exploring what-if options that would have been better. Whenever we're choosing one thing, we're simultaneously choosing not to do something else. Some of those other things most certainly are going to be attractive too. The third downside of increased choice is the potential for an escalation of expectations. When we make a decision and there are only one or two choices, we subconsciously have a lower expectation. However, when there are countless features and customizations, our expectations increase. Even if the increased choices and options actually do translate into better solutions or products, it's likely not to be perfect. Thus, our heightened expectations were merely resentments or disappointments in waiting. We compare what we got to what we expected and far too often what we get is actually disappointing in comparison to what we thought we were going to get. Increasing our options increases our expectations and ultimately sometimes our disappointment. Schwartz also points out something insightful. If there's only one option and we're dissatisfied, whose fault is it really? It's clear. It's the world's fault. However, 
if there's endless options and we're still not satisfied and we ask the same question, who's responsible? It's equally clear the answer is you. He argues that the freedom to choose that we've longed for for so long is actually one of the contributors to our unhappiness today. In the book, Schwartz divides the world into two categories, satisficers and maximizers. A satisficer comes from the term suffice. A satisficer tends to be content with just having enough, while a maximizer, who's continually striving to attain and achieve more, no matter how far they get. Given their different outlooks, maximizers and satisficers have strikingly different approaches to goal setting and expectations they set for themselves and others. Whereas maximizers rarely, if ever, reach their goals because they're constantly striving to push for more, satisficers can reach a goal much more easily as their sense of what they consider to be good enough is much more attainable. Maximizers generally tend to be wealthier than a satisficer due to their unrelenting drive to attain more and achieve more, but they also tend to be a little less happy. No detail is too small for a maximizer. No upside isn't worth pursuing. Average or simply good is the enemy of a maximizer. The challenge is that the pursuit of perfection might look like chasing a mirage. Hindsight is always 2020 in the world of a maximizer. They'll Monday morning quarterback any decision. Was it the absolute best possible outcome? Even if a maximizer is doing exceptionally well, they rarely identify as if they are. The fact is, somebody is always richer. Somebody else's investment always did a little bit better. Somebody else's jet is always a little bit bigger. Satisficers, on the other hand, may pause along the way at some point and decide, yeah, this is good enough. Now, I've never been somebody to champion complacency as a good thing, but what if happiness and flourishing was actually the goal? Then how would you think about the decision of maximizers versus satisficers? What the research finds is that a satisficer is generally happier and more content than a maximizer. For a satisficer, money alone isn't a goal, but rather a tool. It's a tool that can help deliver more of what matters most to us. Good financial decisions in pursuit of a happy and fulfilling life doesn't need to rely upon a zero-sum game or constantly striving for absolute decision perfection. So what now? When it comes to wealth, how can you harness the benefits of being a maximizer while harnessing the happiness that is so often enjoyed by a satisficer? I believe it starts with reframing the goal to wealth preservation and family flourishing. Once you achieve a certain amount of wealth, your goal should change from earning the highest returns to financial unbreakability and time affluence. Let's look to Warren Buffett as a case study. He used his financial base to become the wealthiest, richest investor of all time. He's currently worth $101 billion. However, more than $80 billion came after he qualified for Social Security benefits in his mid-60s. Maximizers often underestimate the value of compound interest combined with financial unbreakability. Use money to gain control over your time because not having control of your time is such a powerful drag on your overall happiness. Cherish and pursue time of fluency. However, it's critical to have a defined organizing principle about how you're going to actually allocate your time so the increased choice doesn't actually provoke more stress. It's an awkward paradox. Money creates options, but more options without a clear plan isn't actually a great thing. When we really have clarity of purpose, it can lead to success. And when we have success, it can lead to more options and more opportunities. 
When we have increased options and opportunities, it can, however, dilute our focus, our efforts, and increase our overall stress. Diffused efforts can actually undermine the very clarity that led or contributed to our success in the first place. In the same way, maximizer tendencies are generally well-rewarded in the world. They often translate to more professional and financial success. Yet those maximizer tendencies, combined with more and more choices, actually can lead to a reduction of happiness and overall flourishing. If the ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want for as long as you want to is the highest intrinsic value of wealth, then how much time have you spent trying to accurately answer that question? What is it that you really enjoy doing? What's your purpose? How's the world going to be any different because you were here? Who are you going to do them with? How much time do you allocate to these different areas of your life? Sure, you might enjoy golf, but do you really want to play 36 holes a day? You might enjoy work, but is 55 hours a week now too much? I think the whole point is that there's real upside when we can get clarity. It allows us the opportunity to capture the benefits of addition through subtraction. We can then actually exercise our no muscle with a lot more confidence. I'll end the episode with a quick client story. I once heard a client respond to a financial strategy suggestion with the statement, if I made another million dollars, it simply wouldn't change my life or my happiness. The added stress and complexity simply isn't worth it to me. I have other priorities that I'm focused on right now. That statement was from several years ago, and I still think about it often. Whether that was the right answer or the wrong answer doesn't really matter. The one thing that I'm sure about, though, is that that client had clarity and contentment that most of us would be envious of. As Greg McEwen points out, when we're really, really clear about our purpose, it can lead to success. If you're feeling pulled in too many directions, confused by all the things that you could do without a peace of mind about what you must do, reach out to your team at DeLap. We can take you through our proven process of exploration, action, and reflection to create a clear path forward. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more content to support client flourishing. And until then, be well.